Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Multhrop, chief executive here and a proud member. Welcome to 2021. Today is January 8th. This is our first Friday forum of the new year. And we are once again live from the studios of our public media partner, 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. Big thanks to them. It has been an unsettling week, to be sure. And while we want to acknowledge the unprecedented destruction at our nation's capital that all of us witnessed this week. There are many news organizations providing analysis and coverage, and we will no doubt take a look at the longer-term implications of all of this in the coming months. But today, we turn our attention to some of the most enduring challenges our nation faces and has faced for some time, the state of our legacy cities. Many of us noted a piece published by the New York Times last weekend and reported from Cleveland's Slavic Village neighborhood. The headline was a bit of an attention grabber. Gunfire and crashing cars in struggling neighborhoods. We're losing our grip. A year of hardship in parts of Cleveland has left many with the sense that the fabric of their communities was fraying. The piece received mixed responses locally. You might be able to summarize those responses by simply saying it was an accurate article but not terribly helpful. Nonetheless, it pointed to the urgency of the issues and challenges facing legacy cities, cities like Cleveland, Ohio, St. Louis, Missouri, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Flint, Michigan, to name a few. And these are places plagued by generational poverty, population loss, systemic racism, and sluggish economic development over decades. So the question before us today is this, what solutions to these challenge might actually start with better land use policy? After all, land is where we live and where we work, where we interact with one another. The land we live on can determine our quality of life. And this is where the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy focuses its its attention. The Lincoln Institute, whose origin story begins right here in Cleveland in 1946, they research and recommend creative approaches to land as solutions to economic, social, and environmental challenges. Their cities, their legacy cities initiative, support civic leaders, policymakers, and others working to build more equitable, sustainable, and prosperous legacy cities. The Lincoln Institute celebrates its 75th anniversary this year, and today is the first in a series of programming of programs we're presenting with them. It's going to unfold over the coming year, looking at the challenges facing legacy cities and the solutions we can bring to those challenges. And today we're talking with Lincoln Institute President and CEO, Dr. George McCarthy, goes by Mac McCarthy, as well as Chantelle Rush. She's Managing Director of the American Cities Program for the Kresge Foundation. Ms. Rush's work focuses, advances the foundation's efforts to catalyze more effective community and economic development practice that expands opportunities for people with low incomes in American cities. So together we're going to talk about the opportunities for legacy cities to prosper and thrive through more inclusive economic development. If you have questions for our speakers, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. If you're on Twitter, you can tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them into the program. Mac McCarthy of the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy, Chantel Rush of the Kresge Foundation, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Well, thanks for having us. It is great to see you both. 
Um, I, Mac McCarthy, I want to start with you and just just using the Slavic Village article as kind of a starting place. I mean, these, these issues of, of poverty, of a fraying social fabric, when you read a story like that, do you see the roots of those problems in land use policy? Well, I see the roots of those problems in a, in a variety of policy failures, but certainly land use policy is one of the major culprits. The... Um, the need to find ways to more effectively use and, and manage land that's been kind of uh, vacant and abandoned for long periods of time has been a challenge for cities all over uh, the country, but it's a particularly uh, vexing challenge for legacy cities where our institutions and systems for finding ways to effectively kind of uh, reimagine the, the use of land has been hampered by old institutions, uh, basically, you know, private property laws and um, old uh, kind of policies like zoning and, and other land use policies that require a different kind of activity and imagination than we've had to draw on for, for decades. But, you know, let's, let's be real. I mean, it's not just land use policy that's the culprit here, but it's basically the abandonment of cities like Cleveland and many, many others by the state and national governments and their willingness to stand by and watch them go into long-term decline and, and not really intervene for generations. What's going on in, in Slavic Village is just now the culmination of decades and decades of, of um, uh, whatever, you know, ignoring problems that have been mounting and, and, and trying to leave it to local uh, governments or even hyper-local governments like neighborhoods as if they're able to solve the problems that they face. There's a point um, that you make that was really, I think it echoes something that Chris Alvarado said on Twitter. Chris is the head of the the Economic Development or the Community Development Corporation, rather, Slavic Village. And um, and he said the same thing. I mean, if you if you don't invest, if the state and federal governments are are not providing the assistance, then they're relying on precarious, on really underfunded organizations like the church that's mentioned in the article. Chantel Rush, the those problems plaguing uh, plaguing our neighborhoods here in Cleveland this is not unique to Cleveland at all. No, it's not unique to Cleveland in any way. And as Max said, we see this throughout the country um, in cities, uh, some of which are legacy cities that historically were, you know, the the heartbeat of American industrialism, and other places throughout the country um, that were once very strong communities where people were living, working, you know, worshiping, um, and now are. Um, plagued by situations where it's frankly un-American kind of the conditions in which people are, are living um, their day to day. And I think, um, you know, how land use is a part of it, certainly, um, because we have to think about for every American in every city across the country, you know, do they have access to safe, quality, affordable housing? Uh, once they walk out of their front door, is there public space um, that's usable for, for kids and people in the neighborhood? What do the commercial quarters look like? Do they, do they actually create jobs? Uh, do they provide uh, opportunities for small business people. Those are the questions that are really important for us to answer if we want to build the kind of country that um, we all envision for our future. Chantel Rush runs the American Cities Program for the Kresge Foundation. And, and Chantel, I wonder if you could just describe that program briefly for us. Sure. Uh, so we focus on expanding opportunity for people with low income. And we look at the ways uh, of doing that through both community and economic development. And so we think a lot about in neighborhoods, what are the institutions, whether that's uh, government, uh, private, 
nonprofit that need to be in place uh, to build stronger neighborhoods. We try to invest in those institutions um, and we try to think through how we improve quality of life for people um, and you know how people who live in neighborhoods that have historically been disinvested and get to have a say and get to benefit from the change in their communities. And, and Mac McCarthy, I want to ask you to kind of pick up where the Lincoln Institute and its legacy cities work kind of overlaps with the work of Kresge Foundation and then also extends it. Sure. So um, we work alongside Kresge and with Kresge in a lot of the same places, but um, we've recently launched this Legacy Cities Initiative, which is really focused on building uh, a national network of community and government leaders that can help to work together to create kind of more prosperous futures for these legacy cities. And basically it's, it's predicated on the idea that we need to find uh, creative ways to overcome the collective action problem by convening leaders and stakeholders, scholars, and others to uh, facilitate the exchange of ideas, uh, uh, you know, launch new research, advance new policy approaches. Um, and you know, it has really four simple goals and they're pretty obvious, right? creating strong local economies, uh, building strong human capital supports like uh, workforce development uh, pathways, um, building healthy, green and stable neighborhoods and uh, establishing sustainable, uh, fiscally sustainable, um, healthy local governments. And so um, we focus mostly right now on smaller legacy cities, not the iconic legacy cities like Cleveland or Detroit, but um, cities that are really between, say, 25,000 and 250,000 in population. And uh, we've now recruited our first class of four cities that are part of that network. And that's um, Akron, Ohio, Dearborn, Michigan, Toledo, Ohio, and Trenton, New Jersey. And each one of those has proposed um, an initiative that they're going to use locally to try to um, really rebuild um, uh, and re revitalize their local economies based on um, uh, a specific approach to what they're going to do. So, for example, in Akron, they're going to support uh, black-owned small businesses to build stronger ties between the businesses and the cities. Or in Dearborn, they want to strengthen the relationship between the city and the Arab-American business owners, particularly those uh, in the south uh, side of the city. And in Toledo, they want to uh, create a community vision around racial equity um, and focus on this Junction Inglewood neighborhood where they want to um, find a way to kind of revitalize that neighborhood. And in Trenton, they're really trying to find a, build a new a community-led planning effort to rebuild East Trenton. But the idea of all of this is that um, these cities aren't working in a vacuum, they're not working alone. And with our help and the help of other cities, we're gonna to help to mobilize kind of policy responses that go beyond the scope of the individual cities, but will engage the states, uh, the federal government, and, um, and really build kind of a, a self-supporting network of, of, of problem solvers around the country. These four cities and the, the projects they're engaged in, they're not, they sound like they're highly targeted. They're not trying to solve every problem. Well, and that's usually kind of one of the biggest problems for those of us living in legacy cities because everybody has a vision of a golden past and then they see they want to recreate all the elements that were part of the golden past of that city. And they, if you do everything at once, you're likely not to accomplish much at all, right? And so we really have to start and build on strength, right? We build on success, we understand, we try new things, we learn from things, we do additional things. And we know that this is not, this is, this is a long haul challenge. It's not something you solve overnight. 
do they have are there specific measurements that the and metrics uh, this either for for both of you this question that those cities um, are looking at or ought to be looking at George why don't we, Mac why don't we start with you well sure well obviously the you know the the specific human capital issues that everybody is looking at is you know unemployment rates uh, poverty rates uh, kind of the quality of the delivery of services uh, to those populations. Um, and then, you know, the basic fiscal issues, like whether or not the, the city is able to marshal the resources they need to, to make the investments uh, and to um, deliver the services that will make the cities attractive to new populations. Because the long run solution is to find ways to turn around the population loss that defines all these places. And, you know, uh, once again, this, this probably comes later, but there are lots of land use uh, metrics that one would like to look at. So, for example, uh, the length of time it takes to effectively reuse vacant and abandoned land, the ability to, um, to, to uh, acquire and clear title and then assemble and reuse a, a vacant land for effective community purposes. Uh, these are the kinds of things that, that in the end, we know uh, will be the, um, the solution for these places because with the right kind of land use, you can actually invest in the right way to make the jobs, to make the opportunities that will improve the quality of life for all the residents. Chantel Rush, when I'm thinking about what Mac just said, the you know clearing title on land, this very sort of um, mundane kind of bureaucratic spade work that needs to be done in order to, to repurpose land, when land sits idle, uh, vacant, um, that's part of that fraying fabric of a community. Yes, exactly. And um, when you bring up the metrics that are, you know, needed and what people need to look at, vacancy is one of those things. And, um, I, you know, it's challenging because as Max says, there's a million metrics or measurements you could be looking at in any community. You could be looking at small business starts, workforce development, real estate development, um, education, health, human services provision, but you have to start somewhere. And what we find is that if you target in on one problem or initiative and you try to apply, you know, collaborative approaches to problem solving to that problem, that builds a muscle that a community can then take and actually transfer and apply to other problems down the road. Chantel Rush runs the American Cities Program for the Kresge Foundation. George Mac McCarthy is president and CEO of the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy. If you have questions for either of them about legacy cities, about solutions, about how land use and land use policy uh, factors into the future of cities and solutions to the challenges we face, you can text those questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. If you're on Twitter, you can tweet it at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. Chantel Rush, the, there's a um, a mayoral race that is very much uh, in, in, in its early phase right now here in the city of Cleveland. Um, but related to that, too, uh, cities all over the country are coming, sort of think, beginning to think about how they come out of this pandemic and what they do differently and what they should be planning for. But I want to ask you the, the really specific question about the Cleveland mayor's race. What do you think ought to be on the agenda um, for the mayor, the mayoral candidates in Cleveland? As And I, I ask that of you thinking, like, what is actually working in other cities that that mayoral candidates here ought to be thinking about. Yeah, so at the Kresge Foundation, we are a private philanthropic foundation. We primarily invest through grants and social investments, and we invest in countries, uh, cities throughout the country, about 213. 
And what we're seeing today is that, you know, mayors have really important choices to make in terms of how they direct capital and how they allocate the city government's resources. Um, in some cities and communities, mayors are still choosing to land just public subsidy and just public dollars equally throughout cities and you know every neighborhood um, trying to tackle every problem at once. What we're seeing in some legacy cities that's starting to work in places like Detroit is the idea that you can actually blend uh, private um, philanthropic capital with public subsidy and try to apply that in strategic and targeted ways to transform um, neighborhoods. Uh, an example of that is actually in Detroit right now with the Mayor's Strategic Neighborhood Fund. Uh, Mayor Duggan has raised $172 million uh, for the Strategic Neighborhood Fund in philanthropic capital and public subsidy. And it is currently being targeted at 10 neighborhoods throughout the city of Detroit. They're taking on challenges like streetscapes, walkability, uh, local business, affordable housing. So this idea of not let's just you know take money and give everybody $2, let's actually think about how we can make more capital available and then uh, do it apply it in a targeted way to communities to try to really transform, create better quality of life, and then take what's learned from those communities to more communities in the city over time. This public-private partnership is not a new idea. I mean, it's a, in, in Cleveland, it's, it's part of the story in Cleveland, right, with uh, the, the mayoral uh, tenure of George Voinovich in, in particular. Uh, Mac McCarthy, what do you think ought to be on the agenda for the mayoral candidates? So um, one thing that, that I, I think really needs to be examined is the kind of the quality of the public systems for kind of getting the work done. And uh, back in the days when I was on the Detroit beat for the Ford Foundation, one of the things that we were uh, really distressed to see was the, um, the length of time it took to really process uh, simple things like certificates of occupancy or building permits or even to you know, chase down code violations. And, uh, we, we did a, a kind of a system analysis and we looked and we and it was you know astounding to see that once somebody had completed the process of, of you know reassembling a uh, like a commercial space to be a restaurant it was taking them 110 days to get a certificate of occupancy to go back into business and that was just completely unacceptable and so with Kresge we actually invested in placing um, uh, process people into the, the local government to figure out what was wrong with that process and why it was taking so long. And they were able to chase down the, um, the, the series of places where um, like a, a, a COO was waiting for a signature of somebody like the fire marshal and, um, and then find process improvements that could actually streamline uh, the local government processes to make it possible for people to actually get things done without dying of frustration, just waiting for the city to move. The other thing is on the land use side, really finding um, innovative ways to begin to use all the land that's in the dominion of the Cuyahoga County Land Bank and repurpose it to assemble large tracts of land to be able to reimagine its use and make the kinds of investments that will attract uh, new businesses, will um, be available for um, higher quality housing for some of the substandard housing you could replace. Um, and part of that's being done. So, for example, I, I, I was uh, told that in Central, they're talking about creating a community land trust with land that they're able to get donated by the, uh, the land bank. And that community land trust is a source of permanently affordable housing that is managed on behalf of and by the community, right? So that's a, a really good kind of long-term solution. And those kinds of 
homebred solutions are things that would be very useful for our mayor to think about. And the last thing, and this is something else, which is a legacy from Detroit, we were really distressed during the days before Detroit went into bankruptcy to see that um, routinely Detroit was leaving up to $100 million um, a year of public subsidy, uh, formula money from the federal government on the table because they didn't have the civic capacity to use it. And when we tried to break down the problem, like what was going on, we realized that it was the um, uh, devolution even within the local government of responsibility for managing relations with state and national governments on grant money. And they just couldn't comply. And they were getting dinged so many times for compliance problems that they had stopped asking for some of that money. And we're talking about community development block grants, other kind of fiscal transfers that are based on population size, not on co competition, right? Uh, and in Detroit, with the investment, once again, of Kresge and the Ford Foundation, we built um, a centralized grants management office that helped the city to manage all grants centrally and then make sure that they didn't have run into any compliance problems. And within four years, they were using all their available funds, which was really important because $100 million is big for a city like Detroit that had, at the time, about a billion dollar um, annual budget, right? So... I don't know whether Cleveland is making full use of all of its available funds from state or national sources. It's probably worth examining. But once again, building that local capacity is a huge challenge and it's something that needs to be done. And the public sector capacity is a necessary element to deliver the, the quality of life and the goods and services that make Cleveland or any other city a desirable location for others to, to live in. Right. So two of those three things are basic, just 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 doing the work of city government a little better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the third thing is is really just sort of maximizing the, the county land bank, which I think most of our listeners are familiar with, but they may not realize that when you talk with other communities about the things that they can do, Cuyahoga County's land bank is one of the examples that you often use. Cuyahoga County has, uh, at the county level, probably, to my knowledge, the best land bank in the country. Detroit has a city-based land bank that's also pretty good, but uh, Cuyahoga County is one of the oldest, and it, it's based on one of the most solid kind of land bank authorities that was written at the state level um, in the country. It's been, been a model for places all over uh, the country. And, and frankly, um, you know, it's been able to do... I, I, I would really, you know, shriek to kind of imagine what Cleveland would look like without the ability of that land bank to get in there and take control of abandoned and vacant property and begin to find ways to effectively manage it. And now, um, you know, this is something that can be just put on steroids and accelerated. And at a time when there's going to be lots of climate refugees looking for places to go, Cleveland looks like an awfully attractive place with lots of fresh water and, uh, and, a, and a pretty good climate, right? It's it's not terrible. It's not terrible. Some yeah. people don't like the winter, but you but but that's because like they're wearing the wrong clothes. I suspect. <laughs> um, Chantel Rush, the next mayor of Cleveland, uh, will face an era of diminished revenues um, because of the just the the realities around employment and unemployment levels in the city of Cleveland, and income tax uh, income taxes revenues are just dropping. Um, should they be thinking about austerity or should they be thinking about investment? Well, absolutely investment. 
um, when a city is undergoing um, a situation where there is population loss in certain neighborhoods or in a community as a whole, there's really no choice but to try to increase quality of life, uh, both to uh, try to um, uh, keep your current residents, but also to attract new ones, and not just residents and, and citizens, but you know businesses, um, all of the different kinds of institutions that are necessary for a place to thrive. I think that's one of the um, counterintuitive uh, uh, parts of city building um, that uh, cities are really starting to understand. Uh, I do a lot of work in, in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and uh, Memphis is a place that, you know, has been losing population over the years. And rather than kind of step back um, and try to move into austerity, the city's doing some really daring things like investing in its riverfront, um, investing in neighborhoods, and it's making the city a greater place to live for existing residents. And it's also making the city more attractive uh, for people. And that's important to increase the tax base and to kind of get the revenues flowing that could actually move uh, the city back uh, into the black. So in other words, you, you can't cut your way to prosperity. Not in my opinion. Um, and I think one thing that people also miss is that, um, you know, part of your tool uh, to prosperity is definitely capital. There's, there's no way around it. It takes money and it takes investment. But I think sometimes people forget too that a lot of the things that, uh, you know, academics study all the time about how you rebuild cities, it, there's money and there's investment needed, but some of the things that are needed are also kind of cheap. Um, you find time and time again, uh, the Boston Federal Reserve did a study looking at, you know, what made cities turn around and what cities uh, did not um, uh, turn around in, in New England. And what they found was that actually it was about collaboration. It was about cities having a plan, a shared goal, um, a leadership um, that actually wanted to go after those plans and after those shared goals. So certainly you have to invest, but you also need planning and you need collaboration about how to do that effectively. Just throwing money at the problem is not going to solve it. Um, it has to be strategic. It has to be collaborative. It has to follow a plan. It has to involve community members. And if you can invest and you could do it in that way, can make a huge difference for a city. Chantal Rush is the managing director of the American Cities Project, American Cities Initiative, pardon me, at the Kresge Foundation. And Mac McCarthy, as we finish out this, this first part of our uh, City Club Forum today, of the City Club Friday Forum, I wonder if you could just briefly tell the Lincoln Land Institute story, like how uh, an idea born in Cleveland 75 years ago became what it is today. Sure. So, you know, it's important to uh, remember that um, at the turn of the 20th century, Cleveland was the Silicon Valley of its day. And, uh, you know, one of the inventors that was sitting in Cleveland and um, building kind of, you know, the, the elements of the, the Industrial Revolution was a, a guy named John C. Lincoln, who um, was uh, uh, really just a, a pure inventor. He held more than 50 different patents. And he was... Um, uh, he was building things like um, high torque electric motors and um, powerful electric brakes that made streetcars possible at the turn of the 20th century. He also was an inventor of um, electric arc welding uh, machinery that was, of course, a very big element in building things like the Intercontinental Railroad, right? Uh, but so John Lincoln, who was a contemporary of Tom Johnson, the mayor of Cleveland at the time, uh, fell into the company of Henry George, who was a progressive um, uh, you know, barnstorming kind of uh, progressive, some people call him an economist, I call him kind of a political economist, um, who uh, had uh, been running around the country talking about the, um, the tragedy of the 
industrial revolution building such opulent amounts of wealth and the persistence of urban poverty and trying to address why that was. And Henry George concluded that it was a land policy problem, that we were distributing the benefits of economic growth in the wrong way, and that idle landowners were, were getting um, you know, gigantic windfalls that they did nothing to earn while the, the, you know, the, the productive elements of society, you know, labor and capitalists, were being taxed to actually pay for the society. And so he proposed that we actually kind of make things fairer by kind of taxing away the unearned increment of, of land value appreciation and use it to eradicate poverty and to, um, and to fund the public sector. Um, and so, uh, you know, John C. Lincoln liked the idea. And, um, and later on, you know, he, uh, he uh, founded the Lincoln Foundation, which later became the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, uh, predicated on the idea that he wanted to spread uh, new economic thinking about how we can use things like land policy as a way to address larger societal issues like um, persistent poverty or other things now that didn't exist at his time, like the climate crisis. And uh, we've been doing it for 75 years. And, um, we're happy to still have the Lincoln Electric Company, which was founded by John C. Lincoln, uh, at home in Euclid, Ohio, right? So it's uh, right there in Cleveland, uh, doing well. It's uh, got a global footprint now, and it's, um, it's been, um, it's been uh, diversified and, and, and successful. And uh, using an interesting kind of model for uh, sharing the benefits of its own success with its own employees that for a long time. So um, it's all a good story. Cleveland's our origin, and we... We love Cleveland. Yes, we do. Um, your story, yeah. your your story, and those early ideas about uh, from Henry George about you know the best use or, or how you deal with idle land reminds me of the um, the surface parking lot problem that plagues downtown Cleveland. And I'll just leave it there. Um, <laughs> but we are uh, talking with Mac McCarthy. He's CEO and president of the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. It's their 75th anniversary, and this is the first in a series of uh, programs we're doing in a year-long partnership with Lincoln, with the Lincoln Institute. Chantelle Rush is with us as well. She's the managing director of the American Cities Initiative at the Kresge Foundation. We've got a number of questions who've come in already. If you'd like to add yours to the list, we welcome that. Just text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can tweet it at the City Club, and we'll work it into the program. You're listening to the City Club Friday Forum, by the way, and I'm Dan Malthrop. So let's um, let's jump into uh, to the questions. I mean, it's a really brief one for you both, but not unrelated to what I just said about surface parking lots, uh, the panelists' comments on public transit would be appreciated. Chantel Rush, starting with you. It's a very wide open question. <laughs> ah, thoughts on public transit. That's a dangerous query. Um, you know, public transit is absolutely essential uh, to creating a city where people are connected to jobs and neighborhoods. Um, it benefits, uh, you know, folks who live in a city who don't have cars, who don't have access to cars. It benefits people who, um, you know, have a car but really want to get away around in a more environmental and, and economical way. Um, it's great for businesses. Um, it allows, you know, workers to get around more easily. It allows um, clients of retailers and customers to get around more easily. Um, our position is that public transit is very necessary um, and that it's important that there's a public transit system that connects uh, parts of the city uh, that have historically maybe been, um, you know, um, uh, disinvested in and disconnected um, to key job corridors um, and to downtown. 
Mac McCarthy, um, this is a very technical question that I hope you can explain uh, the the verbiage in here before you answer it. Um, re- it's about taxation levels. Research shows split rate taxation leads to drastically less sprawl, expanding economic opportunity, and decreasing financial liabilities. Why aren't legacy cities shifting to split rate or lane value taxation instead of traditional property taxes? I have no idea what this refers to. So the, uh, this is predicated on the idea that if you tax uh, the value of land at a higher rate than the value of the improvements, the buildings on the land, um, uh, then you will um, motivate people to make the best use of the land, right? And so um, the idea is this, that if you leave land idle and the value of the land goes up and the cost of leaving it idle con- continues to go up over time, eventually you'll be either motivated to sell the land to someone who's going to use it or you're going to end up paying more and more and more, right? And so, um, and the idea is that you want to motivate people to make the improvements. And if you tax the improvements at the same rate as you tax the land, then you've created kind of a disincentive for folks to actually build nice buildings or even uh, densify and increase uh, the development on land that's, uh, that's highly productive and in good locations. So the idea of the split rate tax is that you you really tax land, the land value at a high multiple of the, uh, the, the improvements. And right now we're actually working with um, folks in the city of Detroit to look at whether or not a split rate tax would work for Detroit and help to accelerate uh, the reuse of vacant and abandoned property. Because the idea that lots of people, and this has certainly happened in Cleveland as well, um, after the, the housing uh, crisis of uh, you know, 2009, 2010, Lots of people are buying up land on speculation on the internet. Properties that they're sitting on and possibly paying taxes or not paying taxes on, hoping that they'll increase in value and just sitting on them and, and they're just adding blight and other kinds of problems to the neighborhoods. Um, there's, there's nothing right now that, it, that is preventing people from uh, just waiting for the cities to recover. And so you wanna find a way to accelerate the process through which they kind of move uh, the, the land into, into useful, uh, into, into good use. And by the way, um, you know, for people living in legacy cities, it's useful to t- take a quick look at history and understand that um, in the 1970s, the cities that were really in trouble weren't uh, Cleveland and Detroit. They were Boston and New York and Seattle and San Francisco, right? And so a city in trouble isn't always a city in trouble. And one of the cities that has made the best use of kind of a vacant property tax, and now it wasn't really a split rate property tax in the same way, was Washington, D.C., where if you uh, leave your land vacant and um, unused, your property tax goes up incrementally over the years, up to, I think, 5%. And so there's a gigantic disincentive in Washington, D.C. to leave land idle. And if you've been to Washington over the last couple of decades, you notice there's not a lot of idle, vacant land in Washington anymore, right? Chantel Rush, um, Mac's story there is specifically about um, Washington, D.C., reminds me that property tax abatements have been used as economic development tools uh, throughout uh, legacy cities, and in particular in Cleveland. Many of them are, are about to expire. They've also been used in other cities to address racial inequities and as policy to undo or to respond to the impacts of historic redlining. Um, and I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about property taxes as policy. Um, I mean, you know, property taxes are um, like any tax. Uh, they 
hit different people in different groups. And so as we think about advancing equity and advancing equality, we have to think about how those taxes can be collected in a way that's most equitable. Uh, we see examples in cities around the country of property tax uh, abatements that benefit uh, residents who lived in a community over periods of time, um, senior citizens, um, different economically disadvantaged um, groups. And it's one way to ensure that people, um, it's economically more easy uh, for them to uh, do better and to be able to um, move forward in a way and be more prosperous. So it is just one tool in a lot of toolkits. And I think the the big thing to think about here in the lesson from that, just as any time you're making any policy, um, it's necessary to think about who's been disadvantaged in the past and how do we actually make that policy um, in a way that can benefit groups that have historically not benefited um, from advantages. And um, that's just one example. You can apply that to a million different kinds of policies, a million different kinds of fees, taxes, levies, and it's just a really consistent muscle that government needs to consistently exercise. Well, so, it, so Dan, can Matt, I jump in ahead. there? Yeah. So um, there's one thing about property tax abatements and getting property tax rates right. And there's another thing about getting the valuation of properties right. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've seen, uh, and this has shown up empirically in many, many places, there's um, a racial bias to uh, property valuation that really, really needs to be addressed. And we need to do a much better job of getting uh, property values accurately assessed because um, the folks that actually take advantage of challenges to their property valuation tend to be people who have access to other resources like lawyers and, 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 and people who can uh, make the claims for them. And very often uh, the valuation of properties owned by African-Americans haven't even been looked at for decades. And we've seen it was played out really, really dramatically in, in the study that I looked at in, in Washington, D.C. But all over the country, we've seen racial bias in property valuation that hasn't really been addressed. And getting valuations right is probably as important, if not more important, than you know, adjusting the tax rates because it's the basis of fairness for uh, taxing people according to their real value. One of the things we learned in Detroit was if we got the valuations right, Detroit went through a real crisis before the bankruptcy where almost 70% of Detroiters were not paying their property tax because as the, 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 the valuation of their property went down, they couldn't afford to pay it and the rates kept going up. And the valuations hadn't been reassessed for years and years and years. And the, uh, and the valuations were, um, were just horribly inequitably distributed. And so the city went through, did a revaluation, actually reduced property rates, and they improved their tax collection markedly in just a three-year period. Just by making the whole thing more fair. More fair, right. There's a really weird set of um, incentives there that kind of run against each other when it comes to property valuation, because you sort of, as a homeowner, a landowner, or property owner, real estate owner, you want your investment to increase in value. And yet, as a um, consumer, say, or a taxpayer, you want to reduce your tax exposure by having a lower value to your, your, um, to your asset. So it's a, it's a little bit of a confusing thing. Um, Chantal, I want to return to the kind of racial equity filter that you mentioned earlier and ask how you would apply that to opportunity zones. Oh, that's an interesting and good question. Um, you know, the opportunity zones are um, fundamentally a problematic uh, piece of legislation because there's not 
um, a lot of transparency on um, what the investments are and who's making them. And on top of that, um, you have a situation where it doesn't matter what the investment is in a community, it still benefits from the tax treatment. Um, so, you know, you could build something that is not something a community wants or needs or something that improves the quality of life in that community and still um, get, you know, a, um, a benefit from that. So um, what people are starting to think about um, in communities around the country is how do we incentivize um, the opportunity zone tax, uh, the credit to be used in a way that actually benefits communities. And part of that is actually about communities and cities organizing and um, being clear about what kinds of development that they want in their communities and using other tools like zoning um, and subsidy to incentivize um, that, that, that opportunity zones receive good investment as opposed to investment that is detrimental to the community. And um, it's hard to do, it's hard to influence. You know, these are large investment firms, funds, um, you know, uh, REITs, other structures that are, you know, coming into a community and they're not always plugged in um, to, the, to the city and to its constituencies. And um, they kind of, you know, lack, often lack of a values bias. Um, so the question really is how communities organize themselves up front to make it clear what kind of investment they do and don't want that improves equity and then use other tools to try to incentivize that tool to be used um, most effectively, but it's very hard to do. Um, and um, the, the legislation itself doesn't actually um, favor that kind of organization. Mac McCarthy, uh, earlier you talked about the things that cities can do, the sort of delivery of basic services, compliance with grant programs for state and federal grants. Um, on the other side, though, what state and federal policy do you think would be most beneficial to cities that either is being done and should be done more or isn't being done at all and ought to be done? Well, so at the state level, it would be really, really useful for the state governments to provide um, easy access to low-cost funds, uh, debt in this case, for uh, cities. And one of the problems with a lot of uh, the legacy cities is that they're um, – their credit ratings have gotten very bad over time. I mean, you know, whether you've gone bankrupt or you've been insolvent or you're barely solvent, uh, the, the rating uh, then makes the cost of capital really expensive. But in places like Massachusetts, they have a thing called an interceptor fund that will allow um, a city like New Bedford uses, for example, um, to uh, use the state's credit rating for the issuance of bonds so they can get bonds at the at the best rate possible and then the, the state guarantees the bonds and if the city doesn't uh, pay off the bonds if they do default on the bonds then the city interrupts the flow of other state uh, uh, transfers to pay off the bonds on behalf of um, the, the lenders so that's one thing on the state level now on the national level i mean it's just really high time that we confronted the problem that we have nationally that we have never had um, an urban or an industrial policy that is meaningful for this country. And that's allowed us to stand by and watch not just cities, but whole regions of the country go to seed um, and act as if the market is the, is the last uh, judge of what uh, a place needs to be and how well a place should do. And um, it's not true that every place in the world has suffered in the way we've suffered by allowing that kind of whatever, you know, lack of care um, for our places. And I'll just give you an example. You know, in the, with the decline of the auto industry in the 70s and 80s, 
Uh, we saw Detroit go down the tubes. We saw uh, Turin, Italy go down the tubes. But we didn't see Bavaria go down the tubes. In Bavaria, the German government, the, the industrialists, the trade unions, and the local governments all got together and they said, what's it going to take for us to maintain our um, elite status in export markets for manufactured goods? Not just cars, but lots of manufactured goods coming out of Bavaria. And what they did was, they, you know, using the, the national government's uh, industrial policy, using um, uh, their ability to influence trade, uh, concessions from the uh, from labor, uh, the right kinds of concessions from the, uh, from employers, they're able to work together to say we're going to do what it takes to keep us thriving and alive. And you know, BMW has not been struggling for the last fifty years, right? Like you know, Ford or Chrysler or Chevy going into you know bankruptcy themselves at least a couple times in that same period. So you know, I don't know why it is that we don't kind of just bite the bullet in this country and say. You know, we need to think about what it's going to take to work together to make sure that areas that areas that are you know in decline don't continue in decline and make the right investments, and and not allow our own you know industries to just jump offshore when they find that it's uh, too expensive or too difficult to even maintain their own physical plants and decide it's easier to set up shop in other countries in the world, right? So, but we've never done that because we've never been willing to kind of. Uh, accept the fact that the market itself is not the best arbiter of what goes on uh, for local or local populations or national populations, for that matter. Another question, uh, and it's sort of surprising this term hasn't come up, Chantal Rush. Um, but how can gentrification be reimagined to avoid displacement? Well, gentrification means a lot of different things to a lot of um, yeah. people today. Um, it's a it's a really heated term. Um, I think what we have to think about is, um, as I think the question asker alludes, is as gentrification without displacement. Um, you can have a community become, you know, safer, have more businesses, have richer public spaces, um, but it matters how that's done. And um, one thing that needs to happen is that it needs to be. Um, people need to think up front as neighborhoods are changing about how they're going to ensure existing residents get to benefit from that change. It's very hard um, when you don't own the land or own the property um, to, to, to dictate how change happens. But there are ways um, that city governments can incentivize um, development that is more affordable. Um, there are ways that existing um, land bank properties um, can be redeveloped in a way that is actually beneficial to existing residents. So that they're offered to um, existing residents first and or um, that they are, you know, re required to be affordable um, is another option. Um, I think there's also people don't pay enough attention to um, the, 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 the social component and the power component of change in communities. So one piece is keeping, you know, ensuring that people continue to be able to live there. But one piece is what are, what's the character of the new businesses that are opening up? What's the character of the new public spaces? What's the character of the changes that are occurring? And how, how is it that people aren't psychologically displaced from their own neighborhood? So they might be able to stay there, but they can't afford to shop at the store. The neighborhood, the corridors don't feel like theirs anymore. And there's a lot of community planning that can be done 
Um, so that um, the businesses that are subsidized, um, the commercial corridor work that's done, the public space work that's done, is actually things that existing residents, first and foremost, actually want in neighborhoods. So as things change, it's changing in a way that it's on the terms of the residents who live there. Um, so you've got to avoid psychological displacement. You've got to ensure that people can continue to live. And then the last thing I want to touch on is, is power. So who sits on the you know, neighborhood board? Um, who gets to be on the committees uh, that, the, that the city is actually creating um, to uh, govern change? Who, who's still in power? Because you can live in a place and not have access to power and access to decision making. So there's got to be a lot of really um, targeted um, thinking about how to ensure that people who've lived in these communities for a long time get to remain in power and get to have a say. This reminds me, the way you're describing it also reminds me of the work of the National Initiative for Mixed Income Communities out of Case Western Reserve University and Mark Joseph's, uh, that Mark Joseph leads, and that he often says that so much of it is not, isn't, is, is about the programming, like how you, how, what you're doing to bring people together to create the community itself, because it's, it's not just buildings, it's people. Yeah, there's so a great example. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Chantel. Sorry. I was just going to say there's a great example um, actually in Seattle of um, a community in, in Chinatown that's come together. And they've said, you know, when change is going to happen, we, we're in Seattle. It's a wealthy community. Change is going to happen. This neighborhood's going to gentrify. But we want it to be on our terms. And so they've gone through lots of efforts to figure out what would placekeeping um, for the community look like. And you go there and you can see the, everything from the programming to the parks um, to even the, the real estate development that's being done reflects the the desires of the long-term residents of that community and it's a great case to study if you're interested in this the wing luke museum in uh, yeah. seattle is part of that the founder spoke at the city club a couple of years ago mac mccarthy you were jumping in yeah so i was going to say there's a couple of tools that are really um, effective bulwarks against displacement because gentrification in general is not a bad i mean bad thing if it means rising land values you know a better quality of, of services all that but um, one is the community land trust, right? Because what it does is it conveys property into community control and then decisions about what gets done on that, uh, on that land is made by the community. And that includes commercial investment as well as housing that's made permanently affordable. And then the other thing is um, uh, property tax circuit breakers, which are a little bit different than abatements, which are saying that um, we are gonna make sure that if folks who live in these areas, especially um, homeowners live in the areas, don't get priced out by the, the appreciation of their properties, right? And these circuit breakers can take a couple of, uh, of, of um, forms. One is that you, um, you, you fix people's property tax rates and then um, you accumulate the, un, uh, the unpaid property tax rates till, till they decide to sell the property way down the line and just carry it as a lien against the property. Or you just, um, you just uh, identify certain populations that you're gonna say, we're gonna give you this property tax base, uh, break based on length of tenure, um, age, income levels, whatever they are, to make sure that um, by changing kind of the, the economics of the community, you don't also change the demographics uh, by definition, right? Different kind of question right here. Um, healthcare is a key economic driver in greater Cleveland. How can Cleveland's healthcare systems uh, work as partners for economic inclusion and development more effectively? Any advice? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, Cleveland's healthcare uh, providers have been doing some of this. I mean, let's not act as if they haven't done anything, but 
One of the, the, the most successful things that we've seen in multiple cities, including places like Chicago and Detroit, are the um, uh, employer-assisted uh, uh, housing programs where you uh, make it possible for your employees to live close to where they work by providing them financial incentives to do so, right? Um, the, 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 the live downtown and live midtown uh, efforts in Detroit, really, I think we, they pulled together many millions of dollars that were given to both homeowners and renters to uh, allow them to actually live, you know, within um, walking distance or biking distance of the hospitals, which are large employers and anchored in, you know, midtown uh, uh, Detroit. Um, similarly, in, in other places. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is obviously to find ways to soften their campuses to make them kind of more integrated into the local community so that they're not their own little citadels that are locked off in the community, but are actually there for the community to um, participate and enjoy, right? So that uh, the open spaces, the, the broader spaces, and they're not surrounded by these as surface parking lots. And don't get me started on surface parking lots. Uh, but the, the idea is that <laughs> we, we want to find ways to make um, them more integrated into the community in multiple ways and not just, you know, like the Cleveland Clinic, a, a global resource that is kind of then, you know, locked away from the rest of the community, right? Although it is the largest employer in the state of Ohio. So they're generating a huge amount of income tax for the city of Cleveland. Uh, Chantel and Rush. making big investments yeah. in, in, in University Circle and in, yeah. uh, building and I, housing. And, yeah. and if I'm not mistaken, I think all the things that you've talked about are actually there are programs in that in that 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 is all happening in, in to different degrees in the city of Cleveland. Chantel. Yeah, I would just add, you know, hospitals and hospital systems are real estate developers. They usually own a huge amount of land and um, as is as in the case in Cleveland. And so the question is, what filter do they bring to that real estate development and how are they approaching that real estate development? And are they doing some of the things that we've been discussing during this um, during this meeting? One of my colleagues um, on our health program at the Kresge Foundation also spends a lot of time thinking about the treasuries that hospitals have and health systems have. They actually have a fair amount of capital on their balance sheet. And how are they using um, that capital to actually invest in um, better and stronger communities? Um, one thing that I think also is often overlooked is what is the health of, um, of residents in the city and how can um, community health programs actually support. Um, it's one of the big ironies, I would say, in most of the cities that I work in, that there are these huge hospital systems, huge health systems, and yet you have people in zip codes really nearby that are suffering with huge, huge um, rates of asthma, uh, diabetes, um, different issues. So the question is how are those resources being put to use to actually improve the health of nearby residents, which actually benefits the um, economic outcomes in the health system as well, because you don't have people going to the emergency room, so and such and so forth. So how are they being better uh, health providers? How are they being better real estate uh, developers? How are they using their dollars to do inclusive economic development? So Dan, one ahead, of the things that, that is important about that is that um, and, and, and a joint initiative of the Kresge Foundation and the Lincoln Institute is a, 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 an organization called the Center for Community Investment. And one of the things that, uh, that CCI um, has learned is that while hospitals are big landowners and not necessarily uh, very effective developers, and so they have to be helped to find ways to develop the property by being introduced to effective, um, high quality uh, property developers, 
Um, they need to be introduced to others and to be more integrated into kind of the institutional framework of the places that they, they live. Because one of the things about these, these big institutions is that they've spent a long time sometimes at odds with their local government as opposed to integrated in. And so the idea of accelerating these investments in, in, in healthy communities, which is what the, one of the initiatives is called, is part of getting these hospitals to work differently with a new set of stakeholders to get to better outcomes, right? There is indeed, indeed, correct. And there is so much more to talk about, but we are out of time, which is why I'm so glad that we have a whole year to come back and revisit some of these <laughs> some of these things. Chantel Rush is with the Kresge Foundation. George Mack McCarthy is with the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, celebrating their 75th anniversary this year. Thank you both so much for being a part of our first City Club Friday Forum of 2021. Thanks, Dan. Great to see you again, Chantel. Thank you. Thank you also to members and sponsors, donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more about them and join them at cityclub.org slash thank you. Hope you can join us next Friday, January 15th, for a conversation on workforce development with three local leaders. We're actually going to be looking at summer jobs. If you think back to your first summer job, you will remember just how important it was to shaping you into the worker that you became throughout your career. Hope you'll join us for that conversation. I'm Dan Malthrop. We're going to get through this. I promise. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Please wash your hands and keep your distance and wear a mask and get that vaccine if you can. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.